Have you ever been to Zarephath? I hear the absurdity of the question even as I ask it. Literally, Zarephath is a coastal town. It's nestled between Tyre and Sidon on the Mediterranean Sea. It's not a city that's really known for tourism. It's not a very luxurious spot to visit. But this morning, I'm compelled to ask, have you ever been to Zarephath? I doubt you've ever been there, at least not intentionally. Today, we begin a four-part sermon series entitled Elijah, a story of faithfulness. The story of Elijah begins in 1 Kings chapter 17. It's that chapter that I invite you to take a Bible and turn your attention Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As this morning we read 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 to 24. 1 Kings chapter 17, I'll begin reading at verse 7, I'll conclude at verse 24. Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, The son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what have you against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and he cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. 
This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The story I just read for you is a story of God's faithfulness and provision in a world that was quickly becoming religiously tolerant. At this time in Israel's history, the king of Israel was a man by the name of Ahab. Ahab was a pathetic king. The scripture says of Ahab, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than all those before him. Elsewhere it says of Ahab, he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings that preceded him. Ahab's first mistake is that he married Jezebel, that bad girl of scripture. And then after he married Jezebel, it was Jezebel who introduced Ahab to Baal worship. In turn, it was Ahab who introduced Israel to Baal worship. Now, if there's one thing I know about God, it's this. God is jealous for you. And because of that jealousy, he despises disobedience. You can call it whatever you want to. You can call it a mistake. You can call it a moral mishap. You can call it a minor character flaw. You can refer to it as an alternative lifestyle. You can say it's just the way God made me. You can say it's just boys being boys. You can even call it, I'm not perfect, so to err is human. You can call your sin whatever you want to, but at the end of the day, God despises your disobedience. He hates your sin more than you hate your sin. So in our story, God raises up a prophet to judge and indict the nation of Israel. The prophet's name is Elijah. Elijah just burst onto the scenes. He's not given a proper introduction. He doesn't have the right credentials. He doesn't have elaborate titles. He never went one day to our accredited seminaries. The truth of the matter is, Elijah is a redneck from the sticks. Yet he's called by God to speak the word of God. So God sends him to the most powerful man in all of Israel. He gains an audience with King Ahab. He walks in and gives what sounds like a James Spann meteorological report. He says, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there'll be neither dew nor rain over the next few years except at my word. He nodded his head. He turned around, walked away, leaving Ahab stunned. This declaration of no rain sounds odd to us until we remember that Baal was believed to be the God who controlled the weather forecast. Many times this Canaanite deity named Baal was portrayed as standing on a cloud and holding a lightning bolt. But what Elijah is telling King Ahab is that Baal is no deity at all. He's not a God. In fact, the only God is the God Yahweh, the God of the cosmos. And he's the one who opens the floodgates and shuts up the skies. So God sends Elijah to the Kareth Ravine. And there, the prophet is fed meat twice a day by ravens. He drinks from the crystal clear water of the brook. But because of the drought, that brook dried up. So the word of the Lord came to Elijah and told him to go to Zarephath. Zarephath was a city known for smelting. Smelting is that process of burning impurities out of precious metals. 
The process goes something like this. A glob of metal is subjected to intense heat. That heat causes the impurities to rise to the top. An instrument is used to scrape away those impurities and what's left behind is the pure precious metal. This is the process that Job had in mind when he writes, when the Lord has finished testing me, I will come forth as pure gold. It is to this city of suffering, this city of smelting, this city of refining that the Lord sent Elijah. He said to the prophet, I've commanded a widow there to supply you with food. So we read in verse 10, so Elijah went to Zarephath, no questions asked. He just immediately went to this city called Zarephath. Throughout this passage, there is an emphasis upon the word of God and obedience to the word of God. In fact, the word of God or obedience to the word of God is mentioned or referenced no less than seven times in this one chapter of 1 Kings chapter 17. And I think therein lies the greatest challenge for the church today. The greatest challenge for the church that we face today is not belief in the word of God. No, there's still millions of people in the world that believe that this is the very word of God. The greatest challenge for the church today is not access to the word of God. For the Bible remains the number one seller year in and year out. The greatest challenge for the church is not even knowledge of the word of God, even though I'd be the first to admit that biblical literacy is at an all-time low, so you can have people that have been in church all their life, and they don't know whether the story of Jonah comes before or after the worldwide flood of the story of Noah. And even though that's a problem, that's not the greatest challenge in the church today. The greatest challenge in the church today is this issue of obedience to the word of God. If we don't have a problem with obedience, then how do we explain that the divorce rate inside the church is just as high as the divorce rate outside the church? If we don't have a problem with obedience, then how do we explain the use of pornography and the frequency of adultery, which is just as prevalent inside the stained glass windows as outside the stained glass windows? If we don't have a problem with obedience, then how do we explain how selfishness and materialism and verbal vomit and foul language litters the lives of believers at the same overwhelming rate as non-believers? I submit to you this morning that we as a church, we have become dysfunctionally disobedient. We become so accustomed with our disobedience. We become so comfortable with our disobedience that we are satisfied with the evil that's around us and the evil that is within us. And I'm not talking about people outside the church. And I'm not talking about other churches. I'm talking about you. I'm speaking of me. We have become dysfunctionally disobedient. This past week, I came across an article that itemized the last three great movements in the American church over the last 30 years. In the 1980s, there was the megachurch movement. That was where churches uh, were trying to, to, to build up their populations so that thousands of people would come and gather for worship each and every week. Around the 1990s, the new movement was a multi-site movement where churches said, we want to have numerous campuses in our various city or region. At the turn of the century in the American church, there was an emphasis to uh, a missional movement where churches said uh, missions is not something we just give to, but we go to. And so we go on short-term or long-term mission trips. Now, don't misunderstand me. 
I'm all for the megachurch model, and I'm all for the multi-church model. I have no problem with either of those, and I definitely don't have a problem with the missional model and movement of the American church. But what the article itemized is over the same time period, lostness has grown exponentially. So that today in America, there's north of 60% of people, according to this study, who said, I have no interest whatsoever in ever going to church. And so most churches are fighting for the 40% of Americans who will at least say, I'll go to church a couple of times a year. Is this what we've come to? Is this the image of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is this what we are supposed to be about? This is why I submit to you that we have become dysfunctionally disobedient and almost satisfied with the lostness and the evil that's around us and even within us. That's what makes this story so refreshing. Because the word of God comes to the man of God and the man of God is obedient to the word of God. The Lord said to Elijah, go to Zarephath. And Elijah didn't have to debate God. He didn't have to discuss it with God. He didn't have to form a committee. He didn't have to pray about it for a little while. The word of God comes to Elijah and Elijah immediately responds with obedience and he goes to Zarephath. No questions asked. He gets to the city gate and as soon as he enters, he finds a woman there and she's picking up sticks. Now, automatically, he assumes this is the God-given widow that's going to supply me with food. So very politely, he goes up to her and says, excuse me, man, will you please go and fetch me a glass of water? I'm mighty thirsty. I've been traveling a, a mighty long way. And before you come back, will you please bake me a piece of bread? And she responded to him, I don't think you quite understand. You see, sir, I only have a little bit of flour in a jar and a little bit of oil in a jug. I'm here collecting sticks so I can go home and make a meal for myself and my son so we may eat it and then die. Now, friend, I don't know about you, but if that were me, I'd start looking for another widow. I mean, surely this town has got to have more than one widow because, darling, you ain't the one for me, right? I mean, there's got to be another widow because this one can't be the one. At the very least, I'd have a conversation with God. God, are you serious? God, you've got to be joking. Did you hear what she said? She said that she's going to gather sticks, go home, make a meal for herself, her son. They're going to eat it and they're going to die. She has no plans of making another meal. She has no means of making another meal. God, this does not quite add up. Lord, I think that one of us made a mistake. Either you made a mistake in sending me here or I misinterpreted your will. Maybe I took a wrong turn. Maybe there's another Zarephath. Maybe you really want me to go someplace else. But God, I don't see it. I don't feel it. I don't sense it. God, this just doesn't make sense. Have you ever been to Zarephath? Have you ever been to that place where God just does not make sense? Zarephath is a place where faith is tested and the improbable becomes possible. Elijah said to the woman, go home and do as you have said. But first, bake me a piece of bread. Then make something for you and for your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Your jar of flour will not run out. Your jug of oil will not run dry. Until the day the Lord sends rain upon the land. So this woman went 
and did what Elijah had told her. There's obedience all over this passage. The prophet's obedient. The widow is obedient. They are obedient in Jerusalem. They're obedient in Zarephath. Every place you turn, people are being obedient unto the Lord. This woman goes back and God shows up in her kitchen. God becomes very real and very personal. Because every time she reached into her cupboard, there was just enough flour in the jar and just enough oil in the jug. I don't know if she knew the song, but if she knew it, she would have sung it. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, your hand, O Lord, has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, even unto me. If you could interview this woman, she would tell you that now her God was a just enough God. Giving me just enough, just enough flour, just enough oil, just enough for what I need. I wonder if there's anybody in the house today that could echo that same testimony that ours is a God who's a just enough God. He gives you just enough money, just enough meals, just enough mercy, just enough grace, just enough forgiveness, just enough blessing. You've got just enough. You've got really more than enough. But God is a God who provides in a spectacular way. In this story... This woman finds herself in Zarephath. And in Zarephath, not only is obedience required, but God becomes very real and very personal in Zarephath. Once again, if you could interview this woman, she would not talk about a God. She would talk about my God. She wouldn't talk about that provider. She would talk about my provider. She would not speak of that so-called redeemer. She would speak of my redeemer. Because in Zarephath, God becomes very real and very personal. It's not enough to have a, a stiff arm relationship with the Lord. It's not enough to follow God at a distance. When you're in Zarephath, you've got to have a God who is real and personal. Whenever I read this story, there's a phrase that comes to my mind. And the phrase is simply this. That obedience precedes understanding. Obedience precedes understanding. You and I are not called to understand it all, especially in Zarephath. If you ever find yourself in Zarephath, you probably won't understand it all. You won't understand everything about your problem, predicament, or prognosis. You won't understand why this, why God, why now, why me. You won't understand all the particulars, but you're not called to understand everything. You're just called to be obedient in all things. In the old country church, we used to sing the song, We'll understand it better by and by. What does that mean? It means right here, right now, I don't understand it all. In fact, I don't know much of what's going on. But in the sweet by and by, when I finally get to heaven, I will understand it better by and by. But for right now, I'm just called to be obedient to the God who is real and personal. If you ever find yourself in Zarephath, just know that obedience is required. If you ever find yourself in Zarephath, just understand that God becomes very real and very personal. When you get to verse 16, life is good. That jar never runs out of flour. That jug never runs out of oil. Every day, there was enough food for Elijah and the woman and her son. If the story ended at verse 16, so would the sermon. We would just simply conclude the sermon, sing kumbaya, and everybody go home. But the story doesn't end at verse 16, and neither does the sermon. Because life doesn't end in verse 16. 
There's something about life that if you know verse 16, watch out because verse 17 is right around the corner. Just something about it, especially in Zarephath. Verse 17 comes. Verse 17 comes in a rude way. Verse 17 comes in an abusive way. Verse 17 comes and you don't even see it knocking on your door. Sometime later, the boy of the woman who owned the house grew sick. Instead of getting better, he got worse. And eventually, he stopped breathing. This woman had already grieved the loss of her husband. And now life was throwing at her the most vicious curveball. Her son, her one and only son, was now sick. And he wasn't getting any better. She would check on him every day. Multiple times in the day, she waited on him hand and foot. She watched as he was reduced down to the skeleton of the boy that he used to be. She heard the labored breathing as it came upon him. And she was there when there was inhalation, but no exhalation there was a tick on the clock but there was no talk time stood still her precious boy was now dead the coldness of death saturated the house silence gave way to screams screams of agony morphed into sobbing tears she spun around she spoke to the only other living person in the house Elijah himself and she said what do you have against me man of God did you come to remind me of my sin and to kill my son now when you hear those words you don't indict this woman do you Elijah doesn't you feel the pain of verse 17, don't you? You feel the agony of this woman. Some of you know what it is to stand at the casket of your spouse. And some of you know the pain of the vicious curveball of having to bury your child. That's not the way life is supposed to go. Children are supposed to bury their parents. Parents aren't supposed to bury their children. And some of you, you know the pain of this woman. When you hear her words, you don't indict her. You don't try to correct her. You don't incriminate her. And neither does Elijah. Elijah simply said, give me your boy. And he took that dead, lifeless corpse. And I find it very interesting that he took him to the upper room. But his actions are even more intriguing. He laid the dead boy on his bed. And Elijah prayed. Friend, when you are in Zarephath, sometimes the only way to cope with life is to pray. 
And when you pray, you can ask God big questions. And when you pray, you can be vulnerable and transparent before the creator of the universe. When you pray, you can say whatever is on your heart. That's what Elijah does. God, did you send me here to bring tragedy upon this woman by causing her son to die? Is that why I'm here? Is that why you told me to come? It's so that her sin could be incriminated and that her son might die? Oh, Lord, let this boy's life return to him. Oh, Lord, please, let this boy's life return to him. Lord, please, you're able. Let this boy's life return to him. Elijah prayed the same thing three times. Not because God's death But no, Elijah needed to hear it himself for he needed to know that the God to whom he was praying was able to do immeasurably more than he could ever ask, think, or imagine. So God, please let this boy's life return to him. When you're in Zarephath, sometimes the only way to cope with life is to pray. Prayer is not the least we can do. It really is the best we can do. When somebody shares with you a prayer concern. What they're telling you is that they're in Zarephath and they're praying and they want you to pray and the best thing you can do, brother or sister, is to literally pray for them. Is to pray, oh God, please fix this problem. Oh God, please, I know you're able to correct and to heal and to restore and to do a mighty miracle. So oh God, please, because when people are in Zarephath, the only way to cope with life is to pray. So the author of the scripture says that the Lord heard his prayer. The boy's life returned and he lived. It's kind of anticlimactic, don't you think? I mean, if God had asked me to write the scripture, which he didn't, but if he had, I think I would have been more emphatic in this moment. I think I would have been a little bit more enthusiastic. I think I would have said something like this. You should have been there and heard the prayer of the prophet Elijah. He shook the throne of the grace of God and there were lightning bolts and God moved in a mighty way and a tremendous miracle took place and that dead boy got up. But the author doesn't do that at all. The author just says, the Lord heard his prayer, the boy's life returned, and he lived. It's kind of matter of fact, isn't it? It's almost as if that the author of Scripture is not surprised by the mighty miracle of God. Which calls me to ask the question, why does it surprise us when God moves? Why are we surprised when God actually answers our prayers? Why are we surprised when God does a mighty miracle in your life and in mine? For we're praying to the God who preserved Noah and his family in the worldwide flood. We're praying to the God who split the Red Sea so that the Israelites could cross on dry land. We're praying to the God who danced with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace. We're praying to a God who shoved the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den. We're praying to the God who fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. We're praying to the God that raised Jesus from the dead. And if that God did that, don't you certainly think that God could take care of your problem and predicament in Zarephath? Elijah prayed, God heard, the boy's life returned, and he lived. He scooped up the boy, carried him back down the steps, 
and said to the woman, your son is alive. She celebrated. She hooped. She hollered. She got excited. She said, now I know that you are a man of God. And every word that comes from your mouth is truth. This woman was in Zarephath. Zarephath is a place where faith is tested and the improbable becomes possible. When I think of Zarephath, I'm reminded of Nain. Nain is that New Testament village and the story that comes to us in the New Testament, the details are strikingly similar to our Old Testament passage before us this morning. Jesus entered the village of Nain. He bumped into a funeral procession. It was the funeral of a young boy, the one and only son of a grieving widow. Jesus touched the coffin and everything stopped. He had a conversation with that dead corpse. Little boy, get up. And the little boy did. And Jesus scooped him out of the casket and turned and said, Hey, Ma, look at this. <laughs> Your boy's alive. And everybody in the crowd, they went crazy. Why? They didn't know it, but they were in Zarephath. It's a place where faith is tested and the improbable becomes possible. When I think of Zarephath, I'm, I'm reminded of that village called Bethany. Bethany is the place where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. Lazarus, the best friend of Jesus, got sick. The sisters sent word to Jesus. Jesus stayed where he was. By the time he got to the village of Bethany, Lazarus had been there too for four days. Jesus is visibly grieving over the death of Lazarus. He goes to the tomb, orders for the stone to be rolled away. Lazarus, he says, come out. And the dead man comes hopping out of the grave. You know he's hopping because Jesus says, unbind his hands and his feet. He comes out doing the hallelujah hop, the sanctified shuffle, the resurrection two-step. And Jesus says, unbind his hands and feet. And everybody goes crazy. Why? Because they're in Zarephath. It's a place where faith is tested and the improbable becomes possible. Oh, when I think of Zarephath, I'm reminded of Calvary. I'm reminded of that skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. That's that place where the God-man, Jesus himself, was a suffering servant. He died for your sins and for mine. The Roman soldiers, they stretched him wide. They raised him high. And after he breathed his last, they laid him low. And the rest of Friday, nothing happened. Early Saturday morning, there was no movement. Saturday evening, nothing took place. But early Sunday morning, Jesus rose with all power and victory in his hands. He conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. And whenever anybody bumped into the resurrected Jesus, there was rejoicing that went on. Why? Because they were in Zarephath. Whether they knew it or not, they were in Zarephath. It's a place where faith is tested and the improbable becomes possible. My friends, when I think of Zarephath, I'm reminded of Owenton, Kentucky. It was January the 15th, 2001. Mindy and her 15-year-old daughter, Sarah Jane, were on their way to the mall. Sarah Jane was going to get a dress for the upcoming Valentine's Day dance at school. Before they could get out of town, a water truck barreled through a stop sign and crushed the passenger side of that van. 
pushed the van across the highway and over into the embankment. Both Mindy and her daughter, Sarah Jane, had to be airlifted to the University of Kentucky Hospital. And somewhere in flight, that precious 15-year-old girl flew to Jesus. In the days that followed, that family asked me to do the funeral. I'd only been a pastor for a few months. Between you and me, I did not know what I was doing. On that day, I walked in to the sanctuary and the place was packed. Students, church members, school teachers, community leaders, everybody came. And everybody had the same question. Why? Why did this happen to Sarah Jane? 15 years old, she loved the Lord. She was the life of the party. You knew that she loved Jesus every time she smiled and put a smile on your face. She had so much life in front of her. Her future was bright. Why? Why did she die on January the 15th, 2001? I did the best I could in that funeral sermon to try to answer that question. But once again, I don't think I did a very good job. Sarah Jane has a grandfather. His name is Buddy. You know buddies, don't you? You got them here in Alabama. We had them there in Kentucky. Buddy is that guy who's tough and gruff and on the outside he's a little rough. That's Buddy. Now Buddy and his wife would normally come to church at First Baptist Owenton. After the funeral, they never missed a Sunday. I remember a couple of months later, it was a regular Sunday morning. We offered the invitation, and all of a sudden, Buddy got up. And Buddy was a permanent fixture back in the back. I mean, he always sat in the same spot. You know, on this day, he got up, came to the aisle, and walked down. He came and took me by the hand, and I said, Buddy, what are you doing? From my vantage point, Buddy had been in church all of his life. He was a, a pillar, a permanent pi- a fixture there in the church. Buddy, what are you doing? Why have you come? And without missing a beat, Buddy started singing the invitation song. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Can I be honest with you? Buddy couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. But on that day, I'd never heard a sweeter solo all my life. And Buddy said, Pastor, I need to give my life to Jesus. And I need to be baptized. And on Easter Sunday night, I had the privilege of baptizing Buddy, that grandfather in Christ. Still to this day, I can't tell you why Sarah Jane died. But I can tell you this. For Buddy and for his family, they were in Zarephath. It's a place where faith is tested and the improbable becomes possible. The interesting thing is that all of us live in one of three perspectives to Zarephath. Either you're on the outskirts of town about to enter, or 
you're smack dab in the middle of it. Or, by God's grace, it's in your rearview mirror. But regardless of where you find yourself today in relationship to Zarephath, whether you're about to enter it, you don't want to, but it's inevitable, or whether you think you've taken up permanent residence in this God-forsaken place called Zarephath, or whether, by God's grace, you just exited Zarephath, you're saying goodbye to 2017, hello to 2018. Regardless of where you find yourself in connection with Zarephath, let me tell you this morning, God is there. And in Zarephath, Obedience is required. And in Zarephath, God becomes very real and very personal. And in Zarephath, the only way to cope with life is to pray. Have you ever been to Zarephath? Zarephath is that place where faith is tested and the improbable becomes possible. Friend, have you ever been to Zarephath? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Father, I just sense that many people know exactly what I'm talking about. To be in that place of refining and suffering and smelting. To be in that place where it just does not make sense. And Father, I pray that today through the preaching of your word that your people are helped and encouraged, that the lost may be found, that the saved may fall madly in love with you afresh. Oh, Father, there may be some who need to come, just like Buddy, and place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There may be some people here today who just need to come and flock to the altar and fall on their face and say they too are tired of being dysfunctionally disobedient. Oh, Father, However you move this morning, we're, we are going to give you all the credit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.